I hope that uh, hope you had a meaningful Fourth of July, 236 years of our nation's history. But maybe uh, you were a little bit like me as you kind of maybe thought on the Fourth of July. You know, 236 years of history. There's a lot to think about as our nation and its history, and a lot to be proud of. But when you think about our future, and you think about where our country is going. Uh, perhaps, like me, you had some uh, reserve, and you thought, I'm not so sure, you know, that the things that I would celebrate in the past are the things that we're choosing to embrace in the future. And so, uh, in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, he says that the history of Israel is for our benefit. That the things that happened to Israel and that were written down, were written for those upon whom the end of the ages has come. I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, it says this. These things occurred as examples. You mean to tell me that all the stuff that was happening in the life of the nation of Israel was for, for them, yes, but for us as well? Yeah, uh, there were examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things like they did. There's an example. Verse 11, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. The fulfillment of the ages would be on this side of Christ. The fulfillment of the nation of Israel's purpose in bringing the Messiah into the world, the Savior of the world. And these things happened and were written down, their history, so that we could benefit, so that we could understand what God is like and how God interacts with his people. Now, there are a lot of people, when uh, we study the book of Romans, there are a lot of people who recognize that the first eight chapters are theology. It's Paul's theology. It's Paul's description of how God interacts with people through Christ. And then chapters 12 through 16, the last five chapters, are all about the application of the theology, the truth about God, to our lives. And there's a lot of people who think that chapters 9, 10, and 11 are just like an addendum. Just like, oh, well, Paul just had to get this off his chest, didn't know where to put it, so he just stuck it in the very heart and center of Romans. But I would suggest to you this morning that, no, it's there for a purpose. There are some commentators who would just... Study Romans 1 to 8 and jump right to 12 and skip the whole thing about Israel. The 3, 9, 10, and 11 where we're at is all about Israel. And I would submit to you or suggest to you that perhaps that's the core of the book of Romans. That very, at the very heart of the book of Romans is that the theology Paul's talking about is demonstrated in the life of Israel. And that the application of the theology is also demonstrated in the life of Israel. And so Paul in chapters 9, 10, and 11 talks about, first of all, the sovereignty of God in choosing Israel. Then in chapter 10, he talks about, you know, the failure of Israel to trust God. And then in chapter 11, he talks about the future of God's unconditional promises that he made. And so in Romans chapter 9, where we're at in our study of the book of Romans, as Paul is reviewing God's sovereign choice of the nation of Israel for his own purposes, um, Two really important questions, and I keep coming back to this. I think it's really important to know. Verse 6 says, you know, can God's word fail? It's a really important question. Can I trust God's word? Can I take him at his word, or does God's word fail? 
Like, wow, God, you made all these promises to Israel, and now, Paul, according to your gospel, all of these great blessings are going to Gentile people. What happened to God's word? And so Paul answers this question, can God's word ever fail? And this is a really important issue to all of us who trust God, take him at his word, are depending on his word for eternity. Um, And the answer that Paul comes is, no, God's word doesn't fail. You failed, Paul says. The people failed. Israel failed. And just because people failed does not mean that God fails. God has not failed because Israel failed to embrace the Messiah. Israel, in spite of being elected, in spite of being predestined, in spite of being chosen, in spite of being blessed in seven different ways, as Paul explains here, failed to embrace the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so fell into the state that Israel was in for 2,500 years. Second question, uh, verse 11, is God then unjust? Is God unjust? If God chose to be merciful and compassionate to Israel when they didn't deserve it, now is God unjust because he's being merciful and compassionate to non-Jewish people, to Gentile nations. And uh, we looked at this last week when we saw that uh, verse 15... You know, is a quote from Exodus chapter 33, uh, verse 15 says, uh, for he says to Moses, uh, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. And um, if you go back to Exodus chapter 33, you realize that's right exactly after the people of Israel were delivered out of Egypt and they created the golden calf, a substitute God to worship. And God was so ticked at them and so angry at them, he said, I'm going to destroy them. But instead he had mercy, he had compassion. And now God is having that same mercy and compassion on Gentile people. And the argument is God being unjust because he's giving mercy and compassion and grace to non-Jewish people. And the non-Jewish, the Jewish people felt, well, they don't deserve it. And Paul's point is, well, neither do you. And uh, you uh, experienced God's grace and compassion uh, in the past. And now God is doing that to other people. And so in verse 16... It doesn't therefore depend upon man's desire or man's effort, but on God's mercy. God is choosing to have mercy on the Gentile people. And then, of course, uh, he he gets into this whole thing about Pharaoh and the example of Pharaoh. And again, uh, I would remind you, this is about the history of Israel, the only one covenant nation that God has ever had. And uh, using the issue is using Pharaoh's hardness in order to accomplish God's purpose, using Pharaoh's own heart. Uh, The Bible says that God encouraged Pharaoh in his hardness of heart and so forth. God glorifying himself uh, above all of Egypt's gods by allowing Pharaoh to stay stubborn and true to his own uh, hardness of heart. And so Paul anticipates a question in verse 19. And this is where we pick up this morning. He says, somebody's going to say to me, right, why does God still blame us? If God is the one who hardened Pharaoh's heart, how could he hold Pharaoh responsible? Which he did. If God is the one who is in control, if God is the one who is sovereign, how can then Pharaoh be responsible if God is the one who hardened his heart? How can God blame us? Well, now this is a question that, you know, lots of books have been written about. If God is really in control... You know, how is it that we then have responsibility for our own choices that we make? And this tension, you know, has uh, been the subject of lots of books. 
And people tend to fall off on one side or the other. On the one side, you have people who say it's all about God and people have no choice at all. God has already determined everything. He's in control and we have no say in the matter at all. On the other side of the spectrum, there are people who say, no, God hasn't controlled anything. and The world is in such a mess because we've made all these choices and we are responsible for everything that's happened. And the truth of the matter is both of these things happen at the same time. And I would submit to you that you and I cannot understand that, that that creates what we would call a mystery to be able to put those two things together. I explain it to myself by God's held two ropes down from heaven. One is his sovereignty and one is our responsibility. And if you hold on to both of those ropes at the same time, you stay balanced. If you let go of one of those ropes and just hold on to the other, you become unbalanced. And I'm satisfied that when I get to heaven, I'll understand the mechanism in God's mind over which these two things come together. And so Paul's answer, he anticipates this question because it's a question people always ask. And Paul's answer to this question, you know, he says, you know, somebody's going to say to me, well, then how can God blame us? Who can resist his will? How could God hold Pharaoh responsible if God's the one who set him up? Okay, who can resist God's will? And here's Paul's answer, right? Look at this, verse 20. Who are you? to talk back to God? That's a great question. Who are you to question God? I say it's the who's who question. Who's who here? Who's God and who's not? Who's all wisdom and knowledge and omniscience? And who's made out of dust? Who's who? Who's who? Who is God and who is not? Who is all-knowing? Who has never learned anything because he already knows everything? Who is perfection and who's made out of the dust of the earth? Does God answer to man or does man answer to God? I would submit to you that God knows everything, but that mankind can only know what God chooses to reveal about himself. There is way more to God than you and I know. Would you agree with that? There is way more to God than you and I know. But there's nothing about us that God doesn't know. He's the creator, we're the created. And so Paul asked this question, you know, uh, who are we then to challenge God if God says, listen, I am sovereign, I'm in control, and you are responsible for your choices. Who are we then to challenge God that he set it up this way? And then Paul goes to an Old Testament illustration to make his point. And uh, this illustration comes out of uh, really Israel's ancient history. In verse 21, he says, he, he asks the question, he says, Does the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? Is it okay for the potter who shapes the clay to make different containers for different things, some for noble use and some for less noble use. And I would suggest to you here that the Bible has a number of metaphors that are used to describe our relationship to God and how God interfaces with people. And this is the first one. Uh, I am the potter, God says, you're the clay. Now. When you think about this, I, I would suggest to you that this is like the lowest level of interaction that you can have with God. I mean, 
At the very beginning, I'm a lump of clay. I'm spinning around in circles, and God is poking me, squeezing me, trying to shape something out of this blob of clay. I'm the potter. You're the clay. I submit to you that that's like the lowest metaphor that's used in the Bible. It's used at the very beginning. If you bump it up a notch, God comes along and he says, listen, I'm the shepherd. You're the sheep. It's much better to be a sheep than clay, but not by much. Because sheep are pretty dumb. They're not very bright. And when you read like the 23rd Psalm, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. I want for nothing. It's because the Lord does everything for the sheep. It's because the sheep can't do anything for itself. It can't find its own food. It can't find its own way. It has to be led. It has to be protected. The shepherd has to do everything for the sheep. So, yeah, sheep is a little bit better than being clay, but not by much. If you keep going with God in a relationship, you'll discover that somewhere along the way, God says, you know, I am the Lord. I'm the master. You're the servant. And all through the Old Testament, you had these, you know, prophets, you had the nation of Israel, and, and they eventually came to understand that God is the master, and we are his servants. We were created to carry out his purposes and to be obedient to him, and, and so forth. Um, but if you move to the New Testament, there's a new metaphor that begins to open up, and God comes along and he says, I'm your father, you're my child. You're my son. You're my daughter. Call me Abba. And I would submit to you that for the first time, the reality of God's love becomes a possibility in our relationship with him. Because God loved us in Christ and gave Christ so that we might begin to experience the reality of a love relationship, of a family relationship. Um, at this level, you know, love is introduced because... With the work of Christ, in the New Testament, we go way beyond what the law could ever do. Call me Abba, God says. I'm your father, you're my child. But then I would suggest that uh, there's another level, even better than that, um, beyond the parent-child level. You know, parent-child relationships have their limits. And uh, in John chapter 15, Jesus says, I no longer call you my servants, but I call you my friends. Because everything the Father has made known to me, I've made known to you. And I would submit to you that friendship is an even higher level. Happy is the parent who raises a child who then becomes your friend. And uh, opens up a level of communication and understanding that's beyond uh, even family. But we're not done yet. If you go even further in the Bible, you realize that ultimately the church is called the bride. And Jesus is the bridegroom and that what's waiting for us on the other side of this life is described in the book of revelation as the wedding feast of the lamb and there is this story of the bible that you could tell through the metaphors of just here's how god starts out working with people and here's where god really is going and here's what god is doing and here's how he's doing it and he begins with this you know kind of lump of clay and it ends in this glorious wedding and so at the very beginning, there's a, a potter who shapes the nation of Israel to be a vessel through which the very Son of God is going to come into the world of people and into the reality of people's lives. And uh, so 
in verse 21, you know, uh, does the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? If God created the nation of Israel to be his vessel, to put his son into, to bring him into the world, is that okay? And the metaphor of uh, Israel and the potter and the clay has been used before. If you uh, want to track along uh, a couple places in the Bible, I won't read them all, but just uh, to give you a flavor of this, uh, in Isaiah chapter 29 and uh, verse 13. The Lord says, these people come near me with their mouth. He's talking about his people Israel. These people come near me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. These people come to church, sing songs, honor me with their lips, but their hearts are a million miles away, God says. Right? Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. They don't know me. They don't understand me. They don't get me. Verse 16. You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, he did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, he knows nothing? It's an illustration that God uses, you know, time and time again. If you uh, forward a little bit, Isaiah chapter 45. Again, Isaiah is using this uh, metaphor of verse 5, 45, 5. I am the Lord and there is none other. You need to know there's only one God, right? Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. You don't deserve it, Israel, but I'm going to strengthen you. I'm going to bless you so that all the peoples of the world, all the nations of the earth, from the rising to the setting of the sun, which covers everybody, can know that I'm God and there is no other, the God of Israel. Okay? Verse 10. Woe to him who says to his father, what have you begotten? Or to his mother, what have you brought to birth? I'm sorry. I skip verse 9. Woe to him who quarrels with his maker. That's the potter part. Woe to him who quarrels with his maker, to him who is but a post herd among the post herds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, what have you begotten? Or his mother, what have you brought to birth? Again, the potter and the clay. And then uh, one more time in Isaiah chapter 64. And again, um, this illustration of the potter and the clay, the God in Israel. 64.4, since ancient times, nobody has heard, no eye has perceived, no, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right. You remember your ways, but when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like wind, our sins sweep us away. Nobody calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and made us waste away because of our sins. 
Yet, O oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. Uh, we are all the work of your hand. Don't be angry beyond measure, O oh Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look upon us, we pray, for we are your people. You shaped us. You formed us. One more place in um, Jeremiah, the next book in the Bible. And uh, here in Jeremiah chapter 18, um, God is again instructing Jeremiah to talk to the people of Israel. And here's what he says, verse 18, uh, verse 1, chapter 18. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred. Something was wrong with it in his hands. And so the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah, Oh, house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, like Nineveh, for example, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster that I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good that I had intended to do for it. Now, therefore, say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. Look, I'm preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each of you, and reform your ways and your actions. But they will reply. Here's what they're going to say. It's no use. Don't bother talking to us. We will continue with our own plans. Each of us will follow the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Inquire among the nations. Who has ever heard anything like this? A most horrible thing has been done by virgin Israel. Verse 15. My people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless idols, which make them stumble in their ways. And in the ancient paths, they made them walk and bypass and on roads not built up. Their land will be laid waste, an object of lasting scorn. All who pass by will be appalled and will shake their heads. I'm the potter, God says. You're the clay. I formed you into a nation. You know, it's often said that the same sun that melts ice hardens clay. Right? The same sun that melts ice hardens clay. And... Uh, if you keep in mind that this is about Israel, and we go a little further in Romans chapter 9, verse 22, here's the question, right? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? Okay? And what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, 
whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So now Paul posits a what-if kind of statement. God is the creator. He has the right to do whatever he pleases. He's the potter, we're the clay. And what if God chooses to bear with great patience the evil of the world, the evil nations of the world, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Romans, who appear to be working against his plans? What if God bears with great patience those prepared for destruction in order that he might make the riches of his glory known to those who are the objects of his mercy? Now, it's important for us to understand, and this is a, a Greek uh, kind of thing that you wouldn't pick up in the text here, but it's important to understand that the word prepare in verse 22, where it says, what if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience uh, the object of his wrath prepared for destruction? It's important to know that that word prepared is in the middle voice or the passive voice, and it has to do with a reflexive action, which would mean... Um, that the subject of that verb acts upon itself. So the sense of what I think should be translated there is that these people were prepared for destruction by themselves. Prepared by themselves for destruction. Um, kind of like Pharaoh. He had ten, you know, uh, ten opportunities, ten options to repent. Uh, God came, brought these plagues, you know, and at, e at the end of each one, there was an opportunity for him to repent and change and stop being so stubborn, but he didn't. And so um, I just want to make this point because uh, James chapter 1, God does not make people sin. God is not liable for people's sins. We are responsible for our sins and our choices. God doesn't make people sin. And so um, these people... Uh, God is talking about here in verse 22, are preparing themselves uh, by rejecting God's word and by rejecting God and, and in our day rejecting his son. Then in verse 23, there's a contrast because in verse 23, it says, what if God did this to make the riches of his glory known to the object of his mercy whom he prepared in advance, okay, for glory? And there, the word prepared is in a different tense. It's in the active voice. It's, uh, it's God who's doing the preparing. Since the beginning of time, God has been preparing to send Christ into the world. God has been preparing the nation of Israel. God has been preparing to demonstrate to the world, to the nations, his reality, his truth, through the formation of the nation of Israel. And it's God who's been preparing. You know, it's the people who are responsible for their destruction, but it's God who's been preparing to show mercy to those who would trust him. To those who would take him at his word. And it's quite a contrast, these two verses, but we wouldn't pick it up in the English language. So it's God who's doing the preparing since the beginning. God has been preparing to send Christ our Savior into the world in order that his, the riches of his glory, which is Christ, right, uh, might be shown to the world. Uh, glory is the opposite of wrath and destruction. And the difference, of course, is faith in God's word. It's believing God. It's taking God at his word. Um, there is, you know, no salvation apart from faith in the person of Christ. And there's no glory apart from salvation in Christ. 
And it's been prepared since the foundation of the world. God's mercy, God's grace, God's forgiveness are all found in the person of Christ. It's been God's plan from the beginning of time. The lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And so what if God did all of this in the nation of Israel in order to set up Christ in an unmistakable way so that all the world might know the glory of God in the person of Christ, the free gift of his salvation. And as Paul said in uh, Romans 8, you know, verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. And so here's God looking down the corridor of history. And here's God preparing this great salvation that starts out as a lump of clay and ends up as the bride of Christ. And it's all been part of this master plan of the, uh, of the human race, of human history. And so Paul goes on here in verse 23 and 24. He says, what if God did all of this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And then Paul goes on to defend that, biblically speaking, this has always been the plan of God. And he quotes a couple of Old Testament prophets. Uh, he reminds his readers that the offer of God's blessing to the Gentiles has already been revealed in their own scriptures. But they wouldn't listen. And so in verse 25 and 26, he quotes from Hosea. Uh, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen in that very place that, where it was said of them, you are not my people, and they will be called sons of the living God. You remember the prophet Hosea, right, was instructed by God to marry uh, uh, a harlot, a prostitute. And, uh, and she, Hosea marries her, and she commits adultery, and God instructs, um, him to stay married to her in spite of all of that. And then God uses that as an illustration to say, you know, I formed Israel to be my people, but they went after other gods, you know. And uh, as you study the uh, book of Hosea and you see this, uh, again, unfolding of this relationship with God and, and you're reminded that God actually named his people Israel, which means struggles with God. God knew that these people would fight against him and struggle with him and so forth. But like Gomer, Israel will not be forsaken forever. And uh, when we get to Romans chapter 11 and uh, we see the future that God has for them, God will buy Israel back with the blood of Christ. And uh, in Romans chapter 11 says all Israel will be saved. But in the meantime, um, God's people are the people, whether they're Jews or Gentiles, who believe him, who take him at his word who trust in his son, Christ. And, uh, and Paul, again, then goes on and cites Isaiah. And he quotes in Isaiah, verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. He cries out, not just kind of writing, you know, in the dark, but Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. And here we start talking about salvation. Only the remnant. God has always had some people who believe him. Only the remnant, they'll believe him. And only the remnant will be saved. Uh, though the number of Israelites, you know, will be like the sand by the seashore, 
Uh, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah, of which there is no trace left today. And so when you think about this, that God has always had a remnant, and it's been the people who believe him. And uh, uh, Paul applies this Old Testament prophecy of Israel's rejection uh, to Israel's rejection of Christ in his day. And uh, the further sentencing of the Jews that, you know, you remember in 722 B.C., the Assyrians came and scattered the northern part of uh, the, the Israelite kingdom. The, it was called Israel, and the southern kingdom was called Judah. And in 722, the Assyrians came took and, and got rid of it and put the people, the ten lost tribes, scattered them amongst all the other people that they had conquered. And then in 586 B.C., uh, almost 600 years before Jesus came, the Babylonians came and took the southern part of the kingdom, Judah, and scattered those people and so forth. And then Christ comes and, and the people reject them. And in 70 A.D., the Romans destroy what's left of um, the, the land and Jerusalem and so forth and scatter the people even further. All the way until 1948, there's not been an Israel as a political entity. And that's a long time, 2,500 years. And now all of a sudden, there is an Israel. It's a remarkable thing. And especially if you take Israel to be God's kind of guide to the rest of the world to help us understand how God interacts with people. And uh, now, I don't say they're the people of God yet. They haven't repented yet. It's a secular nation. But I think Ezekiel tells us that's exactly the way it's going to happen. First, there will be this secular nation. And then, eventually, they will turn to God. And there is a future in Romans chapter 11 when we get there. Uh, it's kind of exciting. Anyway, uh, there's always a remnant. Israel and Judah, uh, it, without this remnant, would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, but God has been faithful all through those 2,500 years. There's been a group of people, and now they're coming back together and so forth. I want to just close with a, a, um, a parable, a story that Jesus told that I think relates to this whole subject quite well and um, about the people of Israel. And uh, it's in Matthew chapter 21. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he's, he says in verse 33, Listen to another parable. There was a landowner, God, who planted a vineyard, Israel, and if we had time, we could go back and make this connection. But anyway, he put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, built a watchtower, and then he rented the vineyard to some farmers, and he went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants, the prophets, and they beat one, they killed another, they stoned a third, and they sent other, then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They'll respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, Ah, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you not ever read the scriptures that say the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. 
Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew that he was talking about them. So they looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. That's the story of Israel. God planted this vineyard, gave it to the Jewish people, sent his son. They killed him, rejected him, and the gospel has gone out to the whole world. And Paul, of course, is the apostle to the Gentiles. Well, um, I want to just say in closing, the one requirement that God's looking for from us is faith. That's all God asks is that we would believe him, that we would take him at his word and uh, believe that his son is the savior of the world. And so I ask you, are you casual about Christ? You know, or have you come to that point beyond just intellectually knowing who he is and choosing then to believe and to surrender your will to this God who loves you and who sent his son into the world. Because the alternative from this story in Matthew chapter 21 of God coming uh, back to the earth to reclaim his people, the alternative to trusting Christ is just not pretty. And uh, the Bible goes on to describe it in a lot of different ways. And I'd submit to you that today is a great day to surrender your heart to the person of Christ who was the object of God's glory from before the world was put together and is the apex of God's revelation to us about himself and the way that he relates to people. There is no other way to be right with God than through faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, who can understand you except what you reveal to us about yourself and we see all through the scriptures that you intend to reveal yourself to us through the nation of Israel and for those of us living on this side of 1948 we're able to look back and we're able to see your hand and we're able to read your word and all of a sudden father different uh, passages of scripture that perhaps were uh, gray and shadowy begin to come to life and we begin to see and we have this great privilege of living at this particular juncture in time with all this history behind us and so I pray this morning father for us that we would acknowledge you that we would recognize that you are the only God and that you're a speaking God you're not silent and that you have made yourself known and that it's your desire that we would come to you it's your desire that all people would be saved you have no pleasure, you tell us, in the death of the wicked. But you do tolerate and you do put up with all the evil in the world for the sake of displaying your glory. May we in this process of living out our lives cooperate with you and your purpose. And may we, Father, find ways to brag on Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.